0: The show needs to be what it needs to be, right? A sort of, so a three hour long interview can be really, really good, but it depends on the interviewer and the, and the sort of substance of the interviewee. And, you know, it's a, it takes one kind of talent to be able to hold a full three hours.
1: podcast junkies episode 231 i'm back i'm harry duran i'm the host of this show the one where we talk to the best most amazing podcasters in the podosphere okay podcast personalities anyone doing awesome things with their shows kind of like last week when we had uh, scott miller on scott is an evp at franklin covey And I would imagine many of you have heard of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Super, super classic, Stephen Covey. And we actually referenced Stephen in my conversation with Scott, and he actually got to meet him. And so that was pretty cool. And as someone who grew up in the corporate world, it was interesting to have that conversation with Scott. This week, I get to speak to the one and only Nick Qua. He is the creator of Hot Pot News, and the host of Servant of the Pod, one of his newest creations. I was super excited to have this conversation with Nick. He is well known in the podosphere. His Hot Pot News is widely read by folks in the podcasting industry. As an immigrant to the United States, Nick has a unique perspective on the things that are happening in this country. And we touch on topics ranging from the pandemic to the current climate of racial unrest, Never one to shy away from challenging subjects. Nick shares his thoughts on the need for open discussion on topics typically considered taboos, such as anxiety and depression. We get the origin story of the Hot Pod newsletter and Nick's thoughts on paid newsletters and the current state of media. I ask him to share the inspiration for starting the Servant of the Pod podcast and what he's learned in his short time as a podcast host. It was definitely one of those conversations when two podcast nerds get to talking that I felt could have gone on an extra hour or so. This episode's brought to you by Focusrite, specifically the Scarlett 2i2, my go-to sound card for all things related to great sound, which is something I really take pride in. And I'm grateful for my partnership with the Focusrite team over these past few years. Special thanks to a review from Stephanie Fuccio. Stephanie writes, I am late to this incredible podcast because until recently, I was a maniac running around all crazy, tasked out like an idiot to appreciate the genuineness that Harry exudes with his guests. His genuine, approachable, and naturally paced conversations on this podcast are soothing to the soul. Don't be like me and miss out on this experience that is damn near podcast meditation. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Don't forget, you too can leave a rating and review that will get read out on this very same podcast. Head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. This episode is also brought to you by Fullcast. If you're looking for help as a business with your podcast, we offer done-for-you services, coaching and consulting with our done-with-you services. And now we also have the Ultimate Podcast Dojo available. It's a new course and community designed to help you start your own podcast additional details at fullcast.co forward slash dojo d-o-j-o stay tuned to the end of the episode where i reveal this week's retention hashtag but for now let's get into this great conversation with nick nick qua founder of hot pod newsletter and host of servant of pod welcome to podcast junkies
0: hey it's my pleasure
1: I was wondering what dish you missed the most from your home country, Malaysia.
0: <laughs> it's a good, good opening question. The one that I think about the most is something called bakute, which is like um, kind of herbal pork stew situation. I remember having it almost every Friday night growing up. But, you know, you can't really get that here because it's pretty intense.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so you moved here in 2008. Is that the right
0: Yes, I did. I, came, I moved here first to Connecticut for college and then
1: stuck around ever since. And how long were you thinking about the United States before you actually made the move?
0: Actually, not very long. There is a parallel alternate universe in which I would have ended up the UK. I was actually supposed to study law in England, but then there was this scholarship opportunity at a university I ended up going to for college, and I applied for that on a whim. And about two months later, it turns out that I had the opportunity to come over. And then I, for some reason, made the decision to do it.
1: What was the biggest shock for you? Uh, I've spoken to people that have uh, grown up most of their lives in another country, having watched Baywatch. And then they come here <laughs> and they're very disappointed when they hit the shores here. So I'm wondering if there was anything that jumped out at you, like culture-wise, that, that was uh, a bit jarring for you.
0: I think I'm in such a way that I don't really get much of culture shock. Sort of intuitively understand, that, intuitively understand that things are going to be sort of different wherever I go to, even if it's
1: my home country. So
0: I don't know. I didn't really have that much of a trouble. The trouble really came from just like trying to figure out like what I wanted to be and all that kind of stuff.
1: Have you figured that, Have you answered that question yet?
0: No, I don't think I ever will. I do know that however, I tend to get between, lazy between the hours of four and seven. That's the, the extent to which I achieve self-knowledge.
1: Oh, Really? What are you reading or that's of interest to you that's not podcasting related?
0: So make it a point to consume a lot of stuff that aren't, that isn't necessarily media podcast related right now. I just finished a book called Pew by Catherine Lacey. Okay, Incredibly good book. Sort of pitches the f- a fable with a moral. I think it's the way that somebody phrased it to me. Uh, and I don't know. I'm also, so, I'm about to start cracking into how to change your mind by Michael Pollan I wrote about psychedelics. Yeah. I find that topic interesting. I'm very envious about the way he writes of the way he writes and so that's i think the the next thing we're sort of crawling into right now
1: how much of your writing style in the newsletter is inspired by the, the books that you read
0: less than you would think i'm actually very formed i was really formed by the the sort of haiti of the blogging era just reading mm-hmm. people being very voicey and finding their perspective online the all was really big gawker was really big for me bill simmons who's the sort of famed columnist now over the ringer it was kind of really formative for me yeah but i think as i've you know done this for a couple of years now and I publish relentlessly and so I'm trying to read more fiction more literature just to get a little bit more of an elegance to the way I write Uh, I think I'm at a very beginning stages of that process but
1: but yeah it's none of this is conscious
0: (laughs) I write the way that I think my brain works that's that's kind of how it
1: functions and you're also a student of philosophy
0: To an extent. Yeah. I, uh, that was one of the things I focused on in college. It's one of the things that I think about a lot. And it's what it's a, it was an area in podcasting I consumed a lot of. Less so nowadays because. I think I kind of just max out about other pe- people's opinions about philosophy. Philosophy in the sort of traditional academic sense. I think there's, there's philosophy in almost everything else in our lives. So that's, that's a little bit of a separate question.
1: I heard you on the Substack podcast, it was, a couple, it was a couple of years ago now, and you were talking about this book that I just discovered recently, Finite Games vs. Infinite Games. And so it's been something that's top of mind, this idea of personal sovereignty, sense-making, meaning-making. So it's taken me down a couple of rabbit holes, and I've discovered folks like Jordan Hall, uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, Jamie Wheel, one of the co-founders of, of, of Flow Genome Project. So I'm just wondering if, if you've found yourself drifting back towards something like that in this, given the world we're living in, where a lot of stuff right now it seems like it's not making sense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I mean, it's interesting to phrase it that way and that the expectation that in this moment I would gravitate towards philosophy. No, I think my, actually, my experience has been the opposite direction. I feel like I have a tendency towards in chaotic and particularly dark times to really, really lean into the dark. So like, you know, none of this has forced me to pike on the bigger questions of like life or whatever, but it's, it's really sort of hooked my brain on like very tangible experiences and solutions. So, you know, really thinking through what the pandemic means for my community, for the place that I live in, it sort of really activated me politically in ways that I didn't expect. And yeah, I don't know, I think it, to some extent, yes, I suppose I have been reading a certain form of philosophy mostly but it's mostly been around organizing and political activism less so the questions about you know a person's place in the universe or something like that
1: so as of this recording, we're towards the end of July, 2020, just to put a, a timestamp <laughs> in there for, f- for future listeners. Yeah, here's a time in, capsule, you know, in 2024. You 20- it it <laughs> yeah. Can you summarize what your experience has been with, you know, everything that's happened, uh, mainly focused on COVID and then the, the racial unrest and just what impact, if any, it, it's had to you and, and the business?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think first and foremost on a business component, because I think it's the, sort of a uniting factor for me being on this, this show, it's been surprisingly stable. Like I had really sort of uh, buckled down for some form of breakdown, some form of meltdown, like whether it is you know, like a loss in contract or a loss in corporate subscription or something like that. That has not turned out to be the case. There were a couple of loss accounts, but that's about it. And, and for the most part, it's been ext- it's been really stable. And you know, the the question is like, is this six months, twelve months, sixteen months? So all of that is intact. However, whenever there's a moment of tremendous change and anxiety, there's there's a story to chase. And so, from a story and journalistic and editorial creative perspective, that has not been sort of a diminishing issue. But for me personally, it's, it's sort of being at home a lot and, and, you know, because I work on the internet and work on my laptop, the distance between me and work has <laughs> shrunk dramatically. And so yeah. really sort of holding on to the ethos of like, my life is more than the sum of my work has been sort of really important to me at this point. And so the past couple of weeks, watching the George Floyd protests sort of bubble up, finding ways to participate uh, safely here in uh, where I live in Boise, Idaho, is has been sort of top of mind. And a lot of it is sort of like, also kind of tempered through the fact that I'm an immigrant here. Like I'm not, I'm not naturalized as an American citizen. And also, you know, I'm of a sort of an ethnic minority that's somewhat adjacent to, but not really directly in to these conversations that we're having right now about racial, rela- race relations in America, which is primarily, you know, black and white. So that's been, <laughs> that's been like, you know, a very condensed version of all the stuff that we've sort of processing the past couple of weeks, all the while trying to sort of find ways to, you know, bring that into the work, keep it separate and keep it some of it for myself. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, again, I, one thing that I will never sort of come up to is that I, I do not have a ton of self-knowledge yet. And so that's, this has been a big step towards that process.
1: How much did you have to educate yourself or did you already know about the history of you know, systemic racism in this country?
0: I'm actually very, very familiar with it. Also, just being a part pro- <laughs> being... I'm not black, but I am an immigrant, and so yeah. the safeties and the uh, assumptions in one's life, if one were white in America, were are not the same, obviously. You know, yeah. And also, it sort of it was a big part of my just formal education in college is sort of highlighting a lot of these these components and these understandings about America, and and also the ways in which it is uh, similar to other countries like my own, and other countries that have their own social, political, racial uh, inequities. So no, I, I wasn't terribly surprised. I also am a minority in my home country. And so like, that's a, you know, <laughs> part <laughs> for the course, you know. Yeah, yeah,
1: So when you arrived from Malaysia, you went to Chicago to, and you were there till about 2012, is that right?
0: No, actually I was in Connecticut from oh, Connecticut. To 2012 2012, okay. and I went to Chicago for graduate school okay. in 2012, 2013.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I remember hearing from that interview on Substack is you're basically wandering the city listening to random shit.
0: Yeah, <laughs> as you yeah. Put it. <laughs> You know, that was a really sort of interesting part of my life. I had thought that I wanted to go into academia, get a degree in sociology and in urban sociology specifically. And, you know, a couple of weeks into my graduate program, I just realized that this is not life for me. I wanted sort of something else. But of course, like being not an American, my visa is is tethered to my uh, factors of being a student. So a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, you know, it was at that time sort of I really started consuming podcasts a lot, uh, Started consuming all forms of different kinds of art a lot. But Podcasting, I think, podcasts at that time kind of really met the moment for me as to what I needed, and so yeah, walking around Chicago, fucking dead, dead of winter, so that I don't (laughs) have to like deal with my problems in my apartment. That was a really formative moment in my life.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that. WTF was was yeah, big big, one, really big one.
0: You know, because very similar themes pop up in at least that point of his work. Uh, You know, he processed a lot of, you know, anxiety, depression, jealousy, that kind of stuff. You know. He's also a dude. I'm a dude. Like, there's this, this like, you know, it's 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 a very male kind of processing, internal, you know, internal, uh, internal, angry, entitled, privileged, <laughs> and so like that. It it was an interesting sort of emotional platform to do so. You know, but it was, that was also the era that I kind of basically listened to every This American Life episode from the beginning <laughs> that I could find. Okay. Yeah, same deal with uh, Radio Lab. I was listening at the time to a lot of philosophy podcasts as well. Particularly one called Partially Examined Life, which holds a kind of a deep place, uh, sort of dear place in my heart. But
1: yeah, that was a really interesting time. It seems like a, you mentioned this idea of uh, having anxiety. And then you also had John Moe on as one of your early guests, the Hilarious World of Depression, great title. And what's interesting is that he had, had already the show discontinued by the time you had him on. Is there a thread there, a common thread, just kind of having the? It's a topic that like not not a lot of people like to talk about, and I you know I've struggled through anxiety in my myself, and I think I'm wondering what your thoughts are on having or hearing more people speak about it, so it's not such a taboo subject.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's definitely, particularly in the past couple of years, it it has felt like that discourse has really opened up, and that more people are you know willing to talk about it and, and integrate it into sort of their public lives however i think it's also just also really limited to media spaces you know there's a lot of people who write about it there's a lot of ways in which that makes it into television or, or movies or, or something like that or just celebrity in general but i'm pretty sure that in spaces that aren't you know media you know uh, many workplaces many communities that is still very much probably a very difficult thing to talk about with people that they should people should be talking to like their loved ones and their support system so uh, it's one thing to perform the act of processing one's anxiety, uh, like in public, it's another yeah. to really like bring it into the home and, you know, talk to your mom and dad about like what that actually means to your life, that kind of thing.
1: Is it, I do if it's the same for you, I was born in El Salvador, so there's a cultural stigma, I think, that you don't talk about these topics or you don't air these topics. Or... Yeah,
0: yeah. No, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's something I still can't really talk to my parents about, you know, because... You know, your parents, like, they, they just kind of want their kids to be okay. Yeah, of course. And there wasn't that sort of culture, at least where I come from, about talk therapy or, or anxiety management or anything like that. Yeah, and so, you know, you kind of want to connect with your parents on that level, but you know they don't really have the tools to do that. And, like, giving them the tools is, is also really hard. And so, no, so you find solace elsewhere, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So, what? How do you explain what it is you do when you when you have conversations with family?
0: Actually, it's gotten easier the past couple of years because I feel like I've I've had some amount of modest success up until this point, very very loosely defined. Yeah. And so my my parents just sort of have an understanding that I run a company, a very very small company, but a company nonetheless, and that I have tangible products that they can sort of access and go like, oh, so that's what you do. <laughs> so, the podcast, like you know, launching servant of pod was, I think, a moment that made them better understand, like, what I do.
1: <laughs> yeah, legitimize you, you're, quote-unquote, on the air.
0: Absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think when I started contributing to Vulture, even though New York Magazine is not exactly a publication that's consumed a lot in Malaysia, they were like, you you have a job at a magazine. Like, <laughs> and yeah, and it's also like, they, you know, they know I'm doing fine. You know, we we depend on each other uh, just socially a lot, a lot anyway, so they sort of can tell that I'm, I'm in an okay place professionally.
1: So after Chicago, you uh, finagled your way into a position at Business Insider?
0: Yeah, with a couple of detours along the way. After Chicago, I moved to New York for a number of different reasons, many of them arbitrary and stupid. <laughs> and I you know, took a, got a series of gigs just working here and there at this sort of weird temp job at that tech comp- startup and this whatever. And a lot of it was just bad, bad, bad experience up and down. With some exceptions, there were some really good teams that I got to be a part of and learn from. But at some point, I sort that's when I started, started thinking about freelance writing as a way to make additional money because I just wasn't getting paid enough. And it was around, you know, maybe my third or fourth contribution. I was like, yeah, I think I want to try to get a job in in a newsroom somewhere. And I just got really lucky, even though uh, I didn't really end up working in a newsroom. I worked at, at Business Insider at the time. to had a, a product called uh, BI Intelligence. I think, I think now it's being sort of bundled together, eMarketer. And so, like that's the kind of work that I was doing—writing sort of newsletter research reports about e-commerce for the most part. And yeah, I don't know—it was a it was a good experience, I suppose, but it was a job.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering. Um, obviously, uh, you're making the you know the rounds on the podcast now, uh, obviously with the, the added visibility of Servant of Pod. So I'm, I'm wondering what it feels like. I imagine you're doing a lot more revisiting of those early days on some of these conversations.
0: Yeah, to some extent, I think folks do ask, like, what was that like? This, this and that. But like, I don't really think about it a lot <laughs> because uh, I think I am I'm of, the, of the sort of disposition where I always try to overload myself with work because that's kind of what gets my juices. Yeah. So like I'm relentlessly looking forward and trying not to look backward as much as I can, which is, again, very unhealthy in a lot of ways. But uh, <laughs> I haven't I've yet to have uh, time to process all of that.
1: Out of curiosity, you mentioned you took a lot of odd jobs uh, through Craigslist. Through Craigslist, I'm wondering what, what the strangest job you ever took was.
0: It wasn't the strangest, but this one is like the strangest for me. I took a, I got a, I was in like phone sales. Um, like I would like call people and try to sell them on a service. Yeah. And it was it was such a shitty job, man. Like you, like <laughs> I, the, there are some people that you just call call up and you kind of go like, you know, you probably want to save that money, but it's my job to get you to spend that money. <laughs> you know, I mean it's just like, ah, shit. And so yeah. that—that's kind of how I could tell that I'm not going to be a good salesperson.
1: <laughs> it's interesting about phone sales because the people that do it well seem to have an uncanny ability to manage. Either I don't know if it's NLP or whatever it is they use, but they they manage to without sight unseen have a conversation with someone in a way that could set them at ease and you know over the course of the next couple of minutes convince them to <laughs> send them money which yeah I, is I mean
0: it's not my kind of interacting with people that's a very extractive yeah. sort of i i'm like putting you at ease so i can get something from you that's the kind of not how i work even though i'm supposed to be a journalist <laughs> but yeah no that was it was a brutal job it was it's, it's such a i i it, it makes sense to me from that experience why a lot of the sort of chief, chief sales officers that I've met through the years, they all have the same kind of personality, you know? <laughs> uh, and from that experience, I, I kind of go like, oh yeah, that's probably why.
1: Yeah, no surprise there. So you are in New York and then 2014 comes around, aka the year of Serial, And that was really the the moment when you started the newsletter as well. Yeah, right?
0: you know, I think consistent with the general narrative that like late 2014, that sort of first arc of the first season of Serial kind of had this sort of moment where, it drew a lot of attention to where something that already existed was there when it was growing. You know, you could use whatever term you want, supercharged, da 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 At the time, I was at Business Insider, and I very, very, sort of very acutely remember watching that show just, like, come into the consciousness and seeing people kind of start asking a question in media outlets and, and just in private conversation, like, what the hell's a podcast? And then seeing people try to explain it who, you know, aren't actually consumers or, or aren't really super familiar with, with what that world is. And by that time, I had been consuming podcasts for a number of years and had been a and was already a significant sort of consumer fan. By. And so I started a newsletter largely because like I was really frustrated what I saw in terms of the coverage of just like kind of treating it somewhat condescendingly when I really wanted to sort of it started out as being like 50 percent you know recommendations 50 this is this is a news thing and this is how i process this and this is what i think the business is so that was the initial like spark of hotpod
1: yeah i remember the early days I, I started my podcast actually 2014 as well so it's been interesting because i thought at the time i was late yeah i, <laughs> like, I hear that a lot, I missed I hear the
0: boat. That a lot like uh, people starting around that era like ah you know did we miss the vote? and then it's funny like a lot of those people now are you know, quite wealthy or or have at not big yeah. job somewhere, yeah. and I I'm beginning to hear the same thing again. You know, I think 2000, <laughs> early 2019 was start hearing the same thing. It was like, oh, am I too late? And I'm like, no. You know, it's, it's, so what do you mean by late? You know, we just got started, right? Like, what's going on?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of interesting? So thoughts on the uh, New York Times acquisition?
0: It makes sense. You know, it really. You know, I think the way to understand that company now is they're really fiercely committed to preserving a certain sort of feeling of a brand prestigious a prestige sort of like stature within a certain layer of publishing the core business model remains this push towards subscriptions but audio and audio advertising has been a really a real growing revenue sector for them and it's also like audio has been such a great marketing funnel for them specifically with the daily and also the other sort of stuff like caliphate and and rabbit rabbit hole so the addition of serial productions you know adds to that sort of core we're good. We are like the powerhouse of this kind of audio journalism, audio storytelling. That's only going to be good for certain ones, forms of advertisers who want to advertise with them. But that's also going to be really good for people who will probably become time subscribers. If not, they are if they if they aren't already, moving forward. Yeah. But the the more important thing to look at is like not more important, but the the thing that I think it's a little bit underplayed is the Dis American Life relationship, where they will be taking over ad sales for that and you know just building a co-partnership between those two brands so that's that's also that's so smart that's really interesting because where else was the productions of this samaritan life gonna go
1: yeah yeah how much time now are you spending on a newsletter and you and can you talk a little bit about building up the team and something that i thought was interesting <laughs> in the sub stack one this is and this may have changed but you said that you don't see you actually don't see yourself as a journalist
0: yeah no i, I don't i still don't i remember also saying that on Long form, which is that podcast that it was, yeah. it was actual journalists. Um, Max Linsky, who who was interviewing me then pressed me on the point. I still I still don't sort of kind of identify myself in that tribe. At large I mean I, I participate in the act of it. But you know, I'm I'm interested in doing other forms of writing as well. And I and I'm very, very cognizant about labels. And so yeah, it's it's funny because like I'm running this newsletter now, I'm a critic for Culture in Europe magazine. I'm doing this podcast as well. I work on a number of other kinds of projects that are unrelated to podcasts whatsoever. And like, I don't know. It's just I don't I don't affiliate myself with anyone profession at this point other than a person who runs a small business and says shit. <laughs> and so no, I think. What was your earlier question? Like you had a you had a question earlier on.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you've grown? Because I mean, when you going from working somewhere to starting something as a solo project to then beginning to like need the need to hire someone to have like an actual company that where you have people that now you're responsible for in terms of like keeping them employed so i'm wondering what the what the growth has looked like and what what that journey has been like for you
0: yeah so uh, i think the clarification of theater here is that like hotpot isn't isn't a company company yet. Like, I mean, it's, it, and I don't think I have any interest in getting to that point. So Caroline a uh, Crampton who is based in the UK and she's, you know, probably the only super regular contributor in many ways, sort of my editorial partner. She gets, she gets paid more than I do from the business. <laughs> but it's like, I built Hot Pot as a vessel to two kinds of things. One is that I really, really want a space to have the kinds of conversations about podcasting and kind of news analysis and, and just sort of like commentary and uh, journalism that I wanted to do and the other thing is that i just you know it's a it's a home like it's not really a company that employs people if people want to write for me they can they can pitch that kind of thing but my sort of responsibility is to make sure that the sort of revenue keeps coming in that the the audiences get served uh, reliably week over week caroline is on a contract and she's the only person that's contributed that has a contract everybody else is pretty informal and that's the way that i like to keep it because i think i like to keep these things flexible
1: What's your thoughts about this current resurgence or wave of le- these paid newsletters like the Substacks? It seems like a lot of folks, Barry Weiss, left the New York Times and I think doing a, a paid newsletter as well. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think there's a couple of ways to attack that question. And I think, for one perspective, you know, to begin with, like the paid newsletter life is not for everybody. You know, <laughs> I think if you have certain expectations about the prestige that you have in your life and being in an institution that can support you in a bunch of different ways, including not having to worry about payroll or human resources or troubleshooting, even uh, you know this this life is not for everybody. It's it's really hard, and and you don't get the same form of dignity and respect that you would be afforded to if you were just a sort of worker somewhere. So I think that that's like on the base level something that's a thing that's really interesting. But you know I'm I'm very pro this push for people to you know take control of their publishing infrastructure. However, I am very sort of skeptical of this conversation about this being the quote-unquote future of media, drones, and this is sort of the trend where everybody's going. Everybody's going to be an independent, discrete writer. Yeah. First of all, there's, it's just a very difficult uh, <laughs> market proposition, right? Slug. Like It's the same yeah. thing with the streaming services. <laughs> you know, you have <laughs> only so many dollars to give. And if you're in a situation where you're thinking, well, if everybody has one of these things and we're basically micro-targeting and carving up smaller and smaller pies of the overall readership, you have a bit of a sort of a market sizing problem, but you also have something of a sort of impact problem where only, you know, an X number of people read you, where you could have had greater impact if you were, if you were, yeah. if you were bundled up even. And so like my gut feeling is that, you know, this is not going to work out for everybody, but there will be a, pu- re- a push for a rebundling, And I suspect that that's what platform-like Substack is anticipating that they will be they will be able to get a cut of is that if that rebundling happens again and then they end up being sort of the underlying guts of that publishing infrastructure however i don't know that's sort of from my perspective i think i'm trying to sort of approach this with an open mind in the same way that like you know a bunch of people were already podcasting when all these attention well everybody said it wanted to make a podcast i'm, I'm cognizant of that i think there are some aspects of this argument that maybe i'm not aware of
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the bundling. There's that actually happening already upstack. Everything is a sort of bundling of like five or six different newsletters all about productivity and, and organizations so i think so basically you pay the one price i think it's 20 as opposed to paying 10 for each one and there's i think five of them on now so i think they are to your point looking at, at that as a way to get in front of more people and introduce them to to a wider variety of uh, writers
0: absolutely and it's like you know i think it's it's listed at the the, the number one paid stack on that chart yeah. is actually a group of writers already so, you know, that in itself is a bundle, right? And so in a way, like, I think any, like, any discourse advanced for by opinion pages and op-ed pages is like inherently kind of dumb <laughs> or or simplistic, you know? And so like, I feel like this yeah, is yeah, such a simplistic, course. no offense to op-ed writers and opinion writers, but it's like, it's super simple. Like, it's it's not going to be just this way. We're finding a way through the dialectic here and, and we'll come out to the other end with a little bit of both and, and something that hopefully advances the, the structure forward.
1: You mentioned on DigiDay that you'd be happy if someone put you out of your misery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yes I did.
1: Is that really just kind of, uh, if there was an opportunity to sell Hot Pod and some other projects up your sleeve that you'd want to put some time into? I mean,
0: this is mostly just an expression of like, you know, this shit is really hard. <laughs> but I'm also just yeah. an incredibly stubborn person. I mean, and I really, really prize my independence. I really, really prize my freedom particularly as a person who doesn't inherently have a ton of like structural power in American society. I am like an immigrant. I'm I'm not white. I live in Idaho. So like naturally I do not have the same like levels of opportunities that people would be willing to give me versus have to go make them for myself. But yeah, you know, the price of independence is that you, that that everything hurts all the time and my, my head is spinning. And so some days, like the day that I was, I went on Digiday, Felt like I just wanted to uh, <laughs> jump off a cliff. You know, that's just kind of how it is.
1: <laughs> they get they find you at that moment in time. How'd you end up in Boise?
0: My wife's from here. And we just made a decision to come back.
1: Okay. Was that a, another culture shock for <laughs> you?
0: To an extent, you know? I'm, yeah. I'm a decently open-minded person. And so, like, all things considered, I didn't really have a culture shock. I'm very cognizant of, like, the specificities of Idaho and what being a non- non-white person is in Idaho. And so, like, I'm not coming with any, any illusions here. There will be racism, there will be racism. Yeah. But it's not any different from when I lived in Connecticut or New York or, or uh, Chicago.
1: Yeah, I grew up just outside New York City, Yonkers, New York. So, and I've lived in New York City, Brooklyn, and, and New York. And then in 2014, moved to LA. So I lived there for four years. And now I'm in Minneapolis. So, <laughs> like, did both coasts. And then, obviously, with everything that's been happening.
0: Yeah. How's, well, how long have you been in Minneapolis? For a year. I mean, before the the pandemic and everything, like my understanding is that Minneapolis is actually like, you know, I would dare say a cooler Chicago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, no, people I mean, have kind of beat the shit yeah. out of me if I said that. Uh, did you do you like it yeah. being there?
1: It took some getting used to. It's cold as hell here. I mean, minus minus twenty is no joke. Even you know, even having gone to school in upstate New York and living in New York, there's something about.
0: Wait, you said uh, minus twenty degrees Celsius?
1: No, uh, Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah. So. I yeah, had to buy a new winter coat. <laughs> just,
0: what, about, wait, what, what brought you to Minneapolis?
1: My girlfriend's here now.
0: That's how does this thing, this, these things roll for us.
1: <laughs> you can relate <laughs> well they do. I mean, I don't know how cold it gets there, but I mean, we walk on lakes, and it's like I'm always just like, how thick is this, and like, how is <laughs> it <a> safe? <laughs> they drive on them too, so it's even wilder they're.
0: So. Uh, we. I know that. De- I mean, to to like send the area i in, and it's a high desert, so we get like dry heat. Okay, and so we're we're in the thick of it right now.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it's just another perspective. And obviously, when the George Floyd stuff hit, the looting was literally happening uh, in one of our neighborhoods. Like, we share an alley with the Apple store. And there was people like running by my window with like IMAX in their hands. It was kind of nuts. Yeah, we'll see where we end up on the other side of this. It's, It's definitely a historic moment in time. And I tell my girlfriend all the time, it'd be interesting in 2030 to be looking back at like, can you believe that? (laughs)
0: well hopefully hopefully it's a different kind of can you believe that and more like can you believe how like fucked up like uh police systems are anyway go ahead
1: (laughs) no it's just interesting and with so much happening it's, it's hard not to have an opinion about what's happening either you know socially and politically and i'm I'm curious you you did mention this idea of being political is is that something you're conscious of in terms of your writing to to not be too polarizing and, and try to find a, a balance in, in there that is not shows you specifically having any specific favoritism
0: no i think you know i get fairly transparent like i i've been politically active for much of my life when i was in malaysia and less so when i moved to the states because you know not my country. Let's <laughs> see <laughs> what's up. But no, with Hoppot with specifically, I don't hide it to an extent. But I am very much my parents' son in the sense that, like, I try to be polite about it. You know, I try to... And maybe that's, you know, there are sort of lines of argumentation. That kind of politeness is actually deleterious to, to you know, advancing you know, certain ideas or, or shifting the over to window or whatever. But, like, I think it's pretty clear if people read me, they kind of know that, like, I don't give two shits about like fucking <laughs> the conservative legislature in the Senate or <laughs> or Congress or yeah. should I dare I say my own state. And you know, it's like I don't see the point of hiding it because a lot of these policies actively are are hurtful to me personally as a as a person moving through this world. And so like why why should I um why should I defend that or not be alive for that? And so no, but the thing about Hot Pot is that like I try to really focus it on like this the story of podcasting specifically of of business specifically i think over the past five years it's it's very clearly been a story about capitalism and there are different political ways that you can approach that but i think people have a general sensibility where i sit Mm -hmm. in in the spectrum here and you know i'm neither i'm not super progressive on some things but i am very much so on others and i think you know just opening yourself up to that that uh, complexity and nuance is is important without outright saying uh, or you giving yourself a label you know and so that's been sort of my political experience through through the publication
1: how did you meet your girlfriend
0: my wife actually went to college
1: and wife now yeah in college okay is she in the business as well or? no god no. Okay. thank goodness she's not in media she's
0: <laughs> okay thank god <laughs>
1: yeah uh, so shifting gears to the podcast obviously you know writing a a newsletter about podcasting. I think fig- you probably figured it was about time to actually <laughs> get behind the mic. So I'm wondering what the initial inspiration was for starting it, and and how long you waited before recording that first episode.
0: Actually, there wasn't. So you know, I, I got emails at the Katanda for a couple of years, like, you know, why don't you make a hot podcast? You know, a hot, hot podcast. And I'm like, well, why don't you make a hot, hot podcast? You know, <laughs> uh, and it's you know, it's a lot of it was just work. Last year fall a sort of a project longer term project i was working on this didn't really pan out you know i sort of had this creative hole in my life i was like all right you know a lot of the time that i've ordinarily spent working on this project i want something to fill this in and i don't really want it to be sort of a direct extension of the stuff that i'm already doing but also like i'm also interested in like what the experience is of building a show of partnering with an institution and see what that process is because i write about all the time it would it be interesting if I went through that process and, you know, and tried to really take it seriously and just grow my empathy there. And so that's sort of when I started thinking about, like, let's, you know, let's build a show, but also let's specifically build it with with an organization. And I reached out to, to KPCC, LA Studios, uh, largely because I knew that they had a, a team in place and that they were interested in, you know, doing more stuff in podcasting. And I was just like, I also just want, I was closer, I had moved to Boise by that time. And I was like, well, that's closer to L.A. And I don't really want to partner with anybody in New York at this point because I don't want to fly back and forth to New York. And so, you know, I reached out to pitch and then uh, very quickly moved to the stages and, and you know, started working the show. And so essentially, creatively speaking, I just wanted a space to build a bunch of different profiles. And working with a team that has specialized in podcasting for for a while now has been such a really sort of really interesting experience.
1: Yeah, I thought it was interesting because you mentioned on the Digiday episode that you missed working with teams. So are you getting some of that now in in your work with Elias?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, working with teams also means in many ways that working with other people's needs and expectations. And that's something that I've never had to do (laughs) with Hotline because like it's what I say goes. (laughs) And like anybody who's sort of written for me and Caroline, I think, can tell you this is sort of like I don't I don't really want to control what she writes or what anybody writes. I'm interested to just work with them and like just publish it. You know, it's, for me, it's either if it's, if it's not a good fit, I'll say it's not a good fit. And we're, we just not we're not going to move forward with that. But with working on the show, it's like it's been interesting because, you know, I would have an idea, but it wouldn't be interesting to the producer. OK, so how can we find a way that's interesting to the producer? You know, they, they do things a certain way, which runs into counter sometimes with certain artistic ideas that I have. But I kind of want to learn from this. So I see the floor and, you know, all right, let's do your process. Let's see what you like to do. And then I'll just find my place in it. And so it's been a really interesting back and forth. And I think it's really helped me grow from that perspective. Whether it will be a successful show is something that we're still actively, aggressively working on. But I think from a creative perspective, I'm, I'm quite happy with the process so far.
1: You find that you're getting your your sea legs now you met you had an early conversation with Anna Sales and you you're saying how nervous you were about creating the podcast <laughs> and getting some feedback from her cuz she's obviously heard that's a that's a great show and I'm wondering what what you've been learning and and how comfortable you've been getting.
0: You know, I'm still very much uncomfortable with all of it. I think to a large extent because I have been listening to podcasts for so much and I like I know what I like, you know, from as a consumer. And the problem is like as a consumer is one thing, but as a creator getting to a point where you can make yourself make stuff that you yourself can can be happy with as a as a read as a consumer that is I think an extremely hard thing particularly if you myself and you, you've just like seen a lot and heard a lot and you have certain expectations so you know I think there's still a massive gap between where I like to be creatively in terms of the product and where I would like it to be but you know you, people have spent their entire lives getting good at one thing, and so. I just have to sort of take that humility with me uh, instead of like going, ah, I should be fucking great at this by now. <laughs> and so it's interesting, yeah. And also rubbing up against, you know, you know, sort of like uh, the, the revenue expectations yeah. and the sort of business expectations with the partners. And so, you know, I, having that being another element of it kind of really dictates, you know, my agency in a lot of ways of like, how, how do I want to approach this creatively? Well, I got to make sure that like, it's something that can sit within their rubric and, and stuff like that. And so that's been a really, it's been interesting.
1: So given that several of the shows are interview-based, who do you continue to admire in the space and that you, that you draw inspiration from?
0: From an, from an interview's perspective? Yeah, in inter- yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, interview-based shows.
0: Interview-based shows, you know, it's you you have your staples, <laughs> you have your Terry Grosses, your Anna Sales, da 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 yeah, yeah. But I, I've always found, like, I've always found people like Howard Stern really interesting. I've always found people like I don't know. I've I've also just found like conversational podcasts to be so much more interesting to me right now as opposed to interview podcasts.
1: Yeah. Can you? That's interesting distinction. I do Can make you, that distinction. Yeah, yeah. and I, yeah.
0: I realize that not everybody does. But like interviews, are sort of is like this, right? You're asking me questions <laughs> as an interviewer. Your job is to not just like oh like extract information from me, but also contextualize it and reconstruct it in a way that feels like a narrative. Conversational podcast is just. It's it's a discussion, uh, and it's a, a good discussion is one thing to be had. A good discussion, a good discussion that's good to be had, to be heard, is a whole different thing, and that to me is like super interesting, and it's also really hard to do. It's also really hard to to talk about and write about, which is something that I've been sort of really struggling with. But but I've, all this is a lead up to say that I've been listening to a, a lot of this this show called You're Wrong About, and it's this really fascinating discussion show that works through sort of an event whether it's a true crime story or whether it's just a moment in in history or a person or an an icon that is widely understood to be one thing but actually has a lot of these this this context around it and it's one thing to construct that story through kind of like like a true crime narrative because it's so to me that's such a boring format now it's so performative oh yeah but to have people who like really emotionally invested in like this is what really happened in this thing. And I'm really interested in these components about it. And let's just talk it out. I think it's such a a powerful thing.
1: Do you feel like the conversational ones work better when you have more time? Like, you know, obviously maybe like a Joe Rogan or a Mark Maron, two two to three hours to kind of get to the, the meat and of like of a conversation and also like you know because that the first 15-20 minutes is, is a bit of a getting to know you phase unless you have a previous relationship with the guest and i'm wondering if, if you think length of the podcast factors into that somehow
0: i actually do think length factors to some extent but you know it's not formula you know it really it really depends on what the show needs and and what the, that team needs and so you know i had this sort of joke at the end of the digital Day podcast of like yeah everything should be shorter but <laughs> yeah I but the reality is is that like. The show needs to be what it needs to be right a sort of so a three hour long interview can be really really good but it depends on the interviewer and the and the sort of substance of the interviewee and you know it's a it takes one kind of talent to be able to hold a full three hours and anybody who's worked sports talk radio can tell you that, the, that it takes a specific kind of talent to to hold three full hours versus yeah. something that could be an interesting tight 10 to 20 minutes so we just had Jody Avergan on, uh, who now does this day in esoteric political history. And that is, like I think, a very, very well conceptualized, this is a discussion, and this will max out at 15 to 20 minutes. And it's tight, and it's smart, and they know exactly the yeah. cases they need to hit. But it, it becomes more of, it's less of a, an investigator in sort of exploratory search of the guest, and more of a really intricate dance almost. Like They know what they're going to do. They're just going to have to sort of hit it in a way that feels interesting within the within the flow that they have. So yeah, I don't know. It depends on it depends on the it, it depends, which is the most boring answer you can give, but it's true.
1: How uh, you're about nine in, and I don't know how many others you have in the can. Have you noticed any shift when you got started, and how you're approaching the interviews, and anything you're doing differently to engage more with your with your guests?
0: I think one thing that I really had to work on, and I'm still working on, not just within the context of the show, but in general, is that like I just needed more confidence going into it because I think. I think a really good conversation for us is where like is where we get to the to the meet very very quickly and that requires some a theory of the case for my part like i need i need when i'm preparing for any of these interviews i need to have the theory of the case of the thing that we're talking about and i really want to get to a point where the guest is comfortable talking about it yeah uh, but i also but you also have to kind of leave room for things that you didn't expect and so you know it's one thing for for me to sort of understand that in theory it's another thing to actually be in in, a, in an interview with somebody that you, maybe you didn't really pre-interview, somebody that I, maybe I don't really know, and try to find an emotional place where we can feel like we can sort of like trade and play and open up with each other and really sort of like talk it through. I don't know. The, the way that I think about it is like, is that, is that thing that people used to say about boxing, or they still do say about boxing, is that you have a plan, and then they punch you in the face. <laughs> to get yeah, in the and seat. then you're like, wow, <laughs> I forgot what the plan was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How much of that is sort of... Maybe it's improv skills. I think about it myself. I'm up to about 228 interviews so far. And and I think I think the key points that I, I try to remember are to be naturally curious, to be comfortable with silence. Like, you know, I, I love the video, and although I, I can't see your face right now, but uh, but just kind of when you ask someone a tough question, you know, if they stop and they don't say anything, you're like, okay. Are you still there?
0: <laughs> but
1: it's just them thinking. They're yeah. just like, oh, that's interesting processing. And I, I think leaving room for that. And then the other thing I think about is I always tell people the third person in the room is the, is, is the listener as well. So just make sure that they're, they're sort of like, it's almost like two people in the bar and they pulled up the third stool and they're just listening to us have a conversation.
0: I mean, yes and no, right? Like, I, I'm always, I'm perpetually fascinated by a sort of like friend at a bar conversation like metaphor because, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, one, it's one thing when it's you and your friend at a bar. It's another thing when you're listening to two friends at a bar <laughs> that yeah, you don't know yeah, yeah. No, so i think i think uh, f- the rubric's a little different for me because we we sort of aggressively edit the interviews but we i think mostly my sort of producer the team that i work with i don't like seeing my producers my my collaborators <laughs> they yeah. they are they're really judicious with cutting and so you know it actually has this effect where it kind of takes a lot of the burden off my back to really get to the meat really quickly because different guests have different kind of comfort levels, right? You know, I had the privilege of like with each of the actual interview when I'm conducting it, that we can take our time. We can take our time. We can work on this. We can work on that. And we try to find places you're comfortable with. Then we find what I'm interested in, you know, on top of what I brought into the interview. And then at the end of the day, you have raw tape. And then you guys kind of, you know, play around in the chunks and try to find out what the representative portions are. So I think it's a little bit different when it comes to you know, a show like this, where the entire arc, actually most of it, will go in, and so the beginning has to feel like it's contiguous to what comes after to that. It to has to feel contiguous to what comes after that, and it has to end in a way, and it has to land in a way that feels like, like feels like it's a closure. Because there, there are a bunch yeah. of interview shows that uh, you can just pick up, it just ends. And that is like one of the <laughs> worst feelings. Is to sort of like, oh really? It just that's over. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, I've like yeah. watch the many television shows do that. And so yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of a different format for sure.
1: How much time goes into each episode?
0: Like, how much time of work in general? Yeah,
1: total production time between obviously, I mean, once it's recorded and then it's in the, in the production team's hands, uh, how, many, how many hours you, would you guess goes into each episode?
0: Yeah, a couple of hours. Like, I, I can't speak for, because like I, we handle different parts of it. Like, I work on the scripting and then I do the tracking. Well, actually, my collaborative team, you know, they come up with a very, very rough draft of what the tracking could be. And then I rewrite it, uh, but then I also listen through to the tracks. So, like I think for me personally, I spend outside of the interview itself two hours of prep maybe, and like maybe four or five hours of just like going through and, and thinking about it and then like also writing and just having an opinion about it because i I need to go then go out and like do radio spots on it and promote it and talk about it and think about it, that kind of thing so uh, but I'm pretty sure my my collaborative team that they have they have a different answer for you there, and they're also like juggling a bunch of different projects, and so maybe it, it differs from from week to week, but we typically try to go at, have We're trying to try to beat the clock here and and be two weeks ahead at a time.
1: How much of your personality comes through on these interviews? Are you conscious of that, of, you know, imposing your views? Or are you trying to be a neutral medium and have the conversation be representative of more of the guest personality?
0: That's actually an interesting way to frame the question. I kind of feel like, again, it depends. But my hope with each individual episode is that my personality only exists to the extent of the framing and that the point of each episode is like to really kind of get that person through. And so if it becomes more me kind of talking about what I think and my views, we fail. We fundamentally fail. Like the, I am the constant factor. So people, hopefully if they stick around it's a week over week, they will know me over time. I don't need to pose upon myself. Yeah. But they only get that one person for that moment. Maybe they'll follow up by subscribing to that person's show. But they only get that person at one glimpse. And so like it, it's a disservice to them if, if I'm more than, you know, 30% of, of the actual interview.
1: You still uncomfortable with the term intimate medium?
0: It's not uncomfortable. (laughs) It's just that I think it's lost all its meaning when people keep talking about it. Like, it's true. But I think people, when they say it now, they don't don't, (laughs) don't respect the (laughs) word, you know. I'm about respecting the word.
1: (laughs) Yeah. A couple questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently?
0: I'm trying to figure out what I want to give you a trivial or non-trivial answer. Which which would you prefer? (laughs) The non-trivial. The non-trivial one. I, I really changed my mind on protests actually i'm actually very much I, I used to sort of think about it as the you know from i think my experience formatively when i was sort of in the united states was the Occupy movement and i kind of watched that move from something that felt initially felt meaningful to something that felt you know exclusive like you need to be a certain kind of person to engage in that kind of type of protest but i think i, I had sort of really um reframed my thinking as to like there are, there is that version of protest, but then there are all these other kinds of, of protests that, that you really need to sort of like find a way to to relate to and be a part of. And then you have to sort of understand that sort of like there are coalitions being built here, and there are different kinds of factions and different kinds of identities and communities that are part of of what feels like a singular action. And so that was something that I I only very roughly understood before this moment, but keeping a closer eye and doing a ton of reading and just sort of like you know talking to people who are parts of, you know, whore mobilizing in their states. Just having a better understanding of that has been a really, really big it's been a big thing for me to process the past, past couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, we took part in a march here in Minneapolis and then there's something about the energy of actually marching down the streets, and just you know, shouting out no justice, no peace and uh, prosecute the police <laughs> and there's an interesting dynamic that happens in groups like that so it's it's and especially in, in in light of this being ground zero for where all it started it's been pretty fascinating to to, to watch and, and take part in
0: yeah and you know also just thinking about the real sort of political purpose right like what are the outcomes that we want from from these remarkable sort of shows of solidarity or shows of uh, political expression what comes next is something that like I'm really 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 just sort of have a tremendous amount of like emotion and energy about you know i come from a country that like you know we we, we had our shot <laughs> we had a shot at something better uh, and then you know it, the process has stalled it feels like you know i used to be a lot more skeptical about about the kinds of people who are gravitate who do gravitate towards like longer term protests but now i've completely completely felt more empathetic towards towards
1: that that movement interesting what's the most misunderstood thing about you
0: that I'm not American. <laughs> There's a lot of people who take it for granted that like, that I am actually very foreign. I, <laughs> I might be up on all my references and that I could connect and relate to Americans really easily, but my, my internal life is very,
1: <laughs> very foreign. <laughs> Interesting. Well, Nick, I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time. I, a lot, lot more questions to ask. And obviously, when it's a show about podcasting and you're talking to, to the editor of a podcast newsletter, there's a, there's a lot more things to, to cover. But I definitely appreciate you sharing a bit of your story with our audience.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
1: What's the best place for folks to connect with you online?
0: Well, you know, first of all, listen to the show. of Pod uh, It's exactly like it, how it sounds. It comes out every Wednesday. And then if you want to find the newsletter, go to hotpotnews.com.
1: All right. Thanks again, Nick. I appreciate it. Thank you. So thanks again to Nick for such an engaging and insightful conversation. So inspiring, especially when you think about him starting the newsletter in 2014. When I started Podcast Junkies and we were on different paths, but supporting the same cause. And uh, six years later, ended up at the same place. (laughs) So it's funny how the world works. Check out full show notes at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 231. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Check out his fantastic music at cedarsoil.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlet 2i2. Head on over to podcastjunkies.com forward slash focusrite.com. To see the full line, tune in next week for my conversation with Tyler Martin. Tyler actually reached out to me, and after a bit of back and forth, we were able to make the conversation happen. He is the host of "Have It Blessed Gay," and we talk about the worlds of religion and spirituality and sexual identity all merging and coming together in what is his show. And uh, it was a really fun and personal conversation at parts. And uh, I I really enjoyed it. And I I think uh, it's something a little bit different. And I think you'll really get a feel for the sincerity of Tyler and what he's doing with the show. If you want your review read out loud, as Stephanie's was at the beginning of the show, head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. Yes, you. I'm talking to you. The moment I read out that URL you were thinking to yourself, I've been meaning to write Harry a review. I've been listening to the show for so long and I feel like I should. Well, I'm here to tell you, today's the day. RateThisPodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. Okay, you made it this far. No doubt you're waiting for the retention hashtag. Let's go with Hot Pod Nick. Hot Pod Nick. Thanks again for all you you to support the show. I love you.